please have a seat. Amen, amen. God is so good. Amen. All right, so in just a minute, I'm going to do the children's message, but I'm going to preach for a couple minutes before I bring you guys up, okay? So you just got to be patient with me. And I'm going to have you come up and help me with something really special this morning. So in the beginning, there was nothing. And God created the world and everything in it. God created the animals, the, the trees, the grass, the atmosphere. Everything that we experience is a consequence of God's creative power. And God created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden and walked with them and talked with them. God fellowshiped with them in a perfect way. They knew God and God knew them. Nothing stood between Adam and Eve and God, their creator. And then Genesis chapter 3 happened. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden to disobey God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did. They, they took a bite of that fruit, and in that moment, all of creation was changed forever. Mankind was separated from our God who loves us. We knew good and evil. We had unfortunately fallen from our perfect relationship from, with God and knew sin. And from that point on, man has a sinful heart, a, a desire to disobey God and His perfect plan for our lives. But thank our God that He loves us. Because before God created the world and everything in it, he already had a plan to redeem us. So God didn't have a plan B. Plan A was to create the world and everything in it, to create you and me at the same time, to send his son at a point in time to die on a cross for our sins. And Jesus has come. God became man and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law in every way possible. That God-man named Jesus from Nazareth willingly gave his life on the cross. While on that cross, blood flowed from him. And that blood was an atonement for our sin. While on that cross, he received the penalty for your sin and mine. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. Shortly after that, he gave his life over to death. That Jesus was buried in the ground... And on the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, conquering death and sin and Satan. That Jesus redeemed us from our sin and gave us an invitation so that anyone that would turn from their sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior would be saved. We would receive the Holy Spirit. We would receive the spiritual gifts that he brings for us to do in furthering God's kingdom, we would receive a promise of everlasting life in heaven and rewards for the things that we do for the Lord here on earth. Meanwhile, this world and everything in it, while being, having been redeemed by Jesus, struggles with our worship of idols. 
You see, God created people for the purpose of worshiping Him and giving Him glory. But because of our sin, we look for every other way, for every other thing to worship instead of our Creator. And that's our challenge. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Always looking for something. Always looking for someone other than God to worship. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is what the Apostle Paul is confronted with in the city of Ephesus. Look with me in the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. The first thing we're going to learn is us people, we love our idols. Us people, humanity, we love our idols. Verse 21 says, After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. There's one important lesson we want to learn from the Apostle Paul just from this part of the text. When we read about Paul and his mission and his work and the way he lived his life, is Paul didn't do the things that Paul wanted to do, right? Paul did the things that the Lord wanted him to do. And so when it was time for Paul to go to a place, when it was time for Paul to leave a place, when it was time for Paul to do something or anything, what we see in the text is Paul always tried to do what the Spirit was leading him to do. And so he's relying on the Holy Spirit to guide his mission. And this time is no different. He says, I feel essentially saying, I feel compelled by the Spirit here to leave, I'm going I'm to go through Macedonia, I'm going to go through Achaia, I'm going to end up in Jerusalem, but his ultimate goal was to go to Rome. So already at this time, Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to make it over to Rome. Now, why did he want to go to Rome of all places? Well, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 15, verse 20 through 21, he says this, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Paul was sent by Jesus as a unique missionary. His mission was to go where the name of Christ had not yet been proclaimed and especially to go to the Gentiles. These are non-Jews, those who would never have heard about God. And so as Paul had saturated much of Asia, much of the Middle East with the gospel, now he felt this beckoning from God to go west, to set up a home base in Rome filled with believers, people who had already heard the gospel, and ultimately to make it over to Spain. So already in Paul's heart is this calling to go west toward Europe. Now eventually Paul would travel back to Jerusalem, as he said he wanted to in verse 21, and he would bring with him an offering from the churches of Asia. So he sent two of his helpers, 
Timothy and Erastus in front of him, we think that they went in front of him to make that collection. And then ultimately he, them, and Paul would make their way into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was undergoing a very difficult time right now. And so the other churches that Paul had led to the Lord had made collections out of their poverty. And ultimately we learn that they would take that collection into Jerusalem to help out the believers who lived there. Verse 23 continues. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines to Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. So I'm going to spend most of our time today talking about humanity's worship of idols and the danger of us surrendering our worship to idols. But I want to spend just a few minutes talking about the way. In verse 23, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, describes Christianity as the way. The word he chose in the original Greek means a road or a path, a route, or in our case, a way of life. The way, our Christian faith, is a narrow path, the Bible says, that few will find with parameters defined by the Word of God. Our direction on that path as we walk on the way is illuminated by His Word and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Our family, as we walk on this way, are other believers. They are our fellow travelers as we live this life. You see, Christianity, for it to be defined by Luke and others in the New Testament as a way, means that it's not just a part of life. Christianity must be our life. We follow Jesus as our Lord, and His will supersedes and saturates everything else in our life. You see, following Jesus is not just a Sunday morning ritual. It's something we do. It's something we believe. Christianity is something we are. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So I want to invite our kids to come up. If you guys come up. It's time for the children's sermon. If anybody wants to come up and help me, I need some help today. Come on up here. Y'all have a seat right here. All right, children's sermon time. Sorry it was a little bit late. I know you guys like to get here in the front end. Oh yeah, toys. Come on up here, bud. All right, have a seat right here. There you go. When we decide, come on, you can come up here. Welcome. When we decide to follow Jesus, oh, one more. All right, anybody else? All right. When we decide to follow Jesus, he wants us to give our whole life to him. That means every part of our life. But the problem is, is sometimes we like to kind of withhold parts of our lives from him, like kind of keep that to ourselves. 
And we also like to like take our relationship with Jesus and kind of keep it segregated or in its like own special place. And we do that with all kinds of things. So what's this? Piggy bank, since you got it. So we like to keep our money in its own special place. Can you go put that inside that box? Can you put it in one of those boxes? Any of you guys like to play sports? Yeah? So we like to keep sports in our own special box. Go put it in a box. You might have to put that one sideways to get it in there. There you go. The things we own, like our cars, we, we like to keep those in their own special box too, right? Here, Sophie, you can do that one. We keep our family stuff separate, right? That's our family stuff. Can you guys put those in boxes? We like to keep our work separated from the Lord. I'll get you next. You guys want to put that in there? Go put it in that box up there. The thing is, kids, I'm really talking to your parents right now, though, okay? One of you, Sophie, grab, uh, grab, that, grab that Bible and bring it up here. It's right there, down. There you go. The thing is, is, is our relationship with the Lord, you know, symbolized by this Bible, we like to also keep that in its own special place, Right? And so our relationship with Jesus is all well and good, right? Y'all can't see this. Let me move this pulpit. As long as we keep Jesus in his box where he belongs, right? We don't take Jesus with us to the bank. We don't, we don't include those things together. We certainly don't take Jesus with us to work, right? What you believe is what you believe. That was funny. <laughs> but they don't mix. Leave Jesus at home. We don't take Jesus with us at Thanksgiving or Christmas. We don't take Jesus with us when we think about the way we spend our money, right? Jesus stays here on Sunday mornings if we feel real faithful, Sunday nights, maybe on Wednesday nights for prayer service, right? This is where he belongs. Is that right? Is that where Jesus belongs? Is he in a box like... Or is he supposed to be part of everything in our life? Yeah, he's supposed to be part of everything in our life. What are some things that you guys love about your life? Here, take one of these. Whoop. What are some things that you guys love about your life? Can you tell me? What do you love about your life? What? Just tell me one thing. Sports. Okay, bring your, your pebble up and put it in here. Your family. Put your pebble in here. Okay, bring it up. Put it, family. What else? Do you like your toys? Put your pebble in here. Anybody else have a pebble that wants to put it up here? Your sisters. Put them up here. Sophie? Hawkeye, your pets, okay. Anybody else have a pebble? Okay, your horse, I love it. What else? Anybody, did everyone get their pebble up here? 
So Jesus doesn't belong in a box, right? He doesn't belong in a box. Jesus calls us to give our whole life to him, everything, so that all those things in our life that we love, all those things that he's given us that bless our lives, the gospel is more like like water. The gospel is supposed to saturate our life and everything in it. All those things you love, Jesus wants to be a part of those things. He wants to be a part of your family and and your work and your friends and, and your toys. He wants to walk with you through your life. That's why Christianity is called away. You guys did an amazing job. Thank you for your help. You can go sit down. All right, so the kids helped me, but, but you know, that message wasn't just for the kids. That was for us two adults. Is our relationship with Jesus characterized as a journey, as a life, as a way of thinking? Does our relationship with Jesus impact every single decision we make? Do we take Jesus with us to work? Does Jesus saturate our relationships with our family and our friends and our neighbors? Is Jesus the Lord of our money and our possessions? Because that's what he calls us to. When he says we're to count the cost of discipleship, that's what that means. Being his disciple means handing everything over to him, the true Lord of our lives. Now that's the way that believers lived in the first century. I'm sure not all of them. But they modeled it for us. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Oh, church, oh, that we would be characterized by Key West as the way. That people would look at our lives and know that we're different. They would know that we follow Jesus because we tell them that we follow Jesus. And we demonstrate that we follow him through our good works. It's a calling upon our lives to walk on the way. Now, here's the promise. A twofold promise from the word of God. When we follow the way, when we live our lives in accordance with the word of God, when we use our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, and when we're on mission for Jesus... We will receive from him amazing rewards in heaven. It will be a glorious day for you. Number two, we will be persecuted on this earth. A twofold promise. Unspeakable joy and peace and persecution. Now only God can do that, right? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As is often the case, the true gospel that Paul preached to the Ephesians confronted their idol worship. It's like every time Paul went to a a new people group and shared the gospel with them, that gospel message, it would confront them with their lifestyle. I mean, nothing's changed the same way today. But in this particular case, there's this guy named Demetrius. So Demetrius is worried that Paul's message and the massive number of conversions that are taking place in Asia right now, 
during this point in the book of Acts are going to hurt his business. So Demetrius was a silversmith. What he did was he fabricated small silver replicas of the temple of Artemis. These have been like charms that people would have wore as jewelry as well as a small idol that they would put like on a, a shelf in their home. So every year, thousands of pilgrims came to Ephesus to worship at the great temple of Artemis. Thousands. And, and the, 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 the worship of this idol was a business. So Demetrius was a silversmith, so he made the little idols. And so what Demetrius notices is that this guy Paul has come sharing this message about Jesus. And he's telling everybody that these, these man-made idols, the things that he makes, are powerless. That they're worthless. That they shouldn't worship them. That they should worship God. Yahweh and the Savior Jesus. Rome had over 33 shrines to Artemis. The one in Ephesus was the biggest one in all the empire. Their operation at the temple was so big that the temple of Artemis was the central bank of Asia. That's how much money they had. People went there to get loans. People went there uh, to put their money away. They offered money and they held money, just like a bank would. And so this message that Paul came sharing threatened all of that. It was a whole business. Big money. Artemis notices this. The message Paul is saying conflicts with our message and our way of life. So verse 25 Demetrius, he's going to get everybody together in town. When he had assembled them, verse 25 says, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius doesn't mince words when he gets all of the workers together. This is very simply what he told them. Listen, we make a lot of money doing this, right? This is how you put food on the table. This guy Paul, this Jew, he's taking people away from us. He's hurting our business by proclaiming this message about this Nazarene Jesus. He's seducing them. He's, He's pulling them away from us. And Paul did do that. So what Demetrius says here is not a lie. Paul did do that. If you want to check it out in Acts 17, he just did it in Athens. He walked into Athens full of idols told them, all this stuff y'all have, these, these handmade, man-made idols, they're worthless. They're not going to do anything for you. So Paul, everything Demetrius said is true. Paul did do all of that stuff. So Artemis tells everybody, listen, we got to do something about this or we're going to be bankrupt. So everything he said is true. That is Paul's message. That is what Paul was trying to do. 
He openly taught against idolatry and said that people should forsake their idol worship and follow Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. Now, in our lives today, in our culture, the gospel message about Jesus does the same thing. The gospel confronts ungodly world beliefs and practices. The gospel requires us to forsake everything and to follow Jesus. And the world rejects that message and will persecute anybody who proclaims it and follows it. I've met many Middle Eastern men, men men from the Middle East who have had the opportunity to come here into America. While in their home countries, some of the most difficult countries to live in the world, Iraq, Iran, those types of places, somehow through God's mercy, they heard the gospel. Some in miraculous ways. Turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they were sold out to Christ immediately. And you know what happened immediately when they sold out to Christ? Persecution. And not like a nasty look at the copy machine at the office. Like beatings, murder, kidnapping, losing every single thing that you own, being removed from your family and everybody you love. When we forsake the world, there will be a consequence from the world. And that's what we need to know. And that's what we need to be ready to experience. But it's worth it. As Paul says oftentimes in the New Testament, as one who experienced all kinds of persecution, it's so, so worth it. The challenge is the world system, the world in which we live today, in which the enemy Satan has been given limited amount of power for a limited amount of time, that world system rejects Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Look at verse 28. When they had heard this, so Artemis and all these fellow workers, they had all gotten together and he got them all worked up with threats and, and, and talk about what Paul's sharing. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. And they began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the, the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions, Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officers of Asia, officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading him not to venture into the amphitheater. So Demetrius gets everybody all worked up. And they start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The mob grew and Soon, the people of Ephesus were characterized by two things, rage and confusion. We've seen this happen in America over the last couple years, just like this. 
The mob is unable to track down Paul. He remains hidden at the request of the Ephesian believers and respected friends. I think this part of the message is amazing, right? So these guys are all worked up about Paul's message about Jesus. They're, they're in a mob, an angry mob filled with rage and confusion. And what does Paul want to do? Look at the text. What does Paul want to do? Man, he wants to go into that amphitheater and set everybody straight. When Paul sees a group of an angry mob, what does Paul think it is? Opportunity to share the gospel. These guys are ready to kill somebody. And Paul's that somebody. And Paul wants to go in there and use that as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. I just, that guy's tough as nails. I'll tell you what. He's not afraid of anything. Well, his friends convince him not to go. They're not, the, the, the mob's unable to find Paul, so they grab a couple of his friends and drag him into the amphitheater. This wasn't an organized legal meeting. It, it was an angry mob. Look at verse 32. It says, Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they came together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand. Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the mob is, is growing bigger and bigger as they yell and scream in the amphitheater. More and more people start to come, and, and the message gets kind of garbled, as mobs often do. They're full of rage, they're screaming and yelling, and before they know it, no one even knows why they're there. They're just there. And so the Jews are there. This, the text doesn't say this, but this is why I think they take Alexander, who, by the way, he drew the short straw, right? They're like in the amphitheater and there's an angry mob. Who's going to go, uh, Alexander, you do it. He's way in the back, probably doesn't lead anything. He's like, wait, what, me? Okay. So he tries to get to the front. I think he was, was called by the Jews to go up in front of the crowd to differentiate the Jews from the Christians. Because back then, during this time, Christianity was still considered by many to be a, a part of Judaism. Which they're connected. But the Jews didn't receive and accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so at this time, I think they push Alexander to the front to like, bifurcate and separate say look we're not with Paul okay we're not with those guys so you can just like we're over here we love what y'all are doing just leave us alone don't you know burn down our temple and so the crowd sees him they recognize him as a Jew they start shouting even louder great is Artemis of the Ephesians great is Artemis of the Ephesians great is Artemis of the Ephesians it goes on for two hours Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This isn't the only time that Paul was able to gather an angry mob after preaching the gospel. It happened in Athens. It will happen again in Jerusalem very soon. And, of course, here in Ephesus. Why does this happen so often to Paul? Why do angry mobs continue to gather and beat him, and shout at him, and try and kill him. Well, Jesus, in John chapter 15, 
prepares the disciples, and ultimately through that message, Paul, and ultimately through that message, you and I, for this. He says in John 15, beginning in verse 18, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. How much did the world hate Jesus? They beat him within an inch of his life, drug him naked through the streets of Jerusalem, and executed him in one of the most painful, horrific ways known to man at that time. That's what they did to Jesus. That was the world's demonstration of their hate for him. So the world hated him. So don't be surprised when it hates you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, if you would just live the way the world wants you to live, the world would love you as its own. If you just go along and get along, if you just follow the rules and leave your relationship with Jesus at home where it belongs and keep your mouth shut and let the world continue to live the way they want to live, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, Jesus says, but I have chosen you out of the world. The world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. This was a limited reality for us over the past couple years during the pandemic. In other states, praise the Lord that living in Florida, we live in a great state where we were allowed to worship in freedom. Other states were not the same. Other pastors and congregations were jailed for worshiping Jesus, for gathering. That was just a taste of what Jesus is talking about here. That's just a taste of what other believers experience all around the world. In his book, Nick Ripkin uh, writes, in his book, Insanity of God, about persecuted people. In the world, in, in places of the world with the, the smallest amount of believers where we need the gospel to be proclaimed the most are also the places where persecution is the worst. We send missionaries to those places because they need to hear the gospel and be saved. Even if most people there respond with hate and violence. Likewise, you're not of the world. Jesus called you out. You've been adopted into the family of God, amen? And now you've been called by him to live in a unique way. The way of Christ. And so don't be surprised when the world persecutes you for living for Christ. But that shouldn't stop us from taking the message into the most important places of our lives. Like taking him home to our families at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Taking that gospel message next door to the neighbor who doesn't know him yet. 
taking that message to work, into the break room as you eat your lunch. God's given us places. And God is opening hearts so people can hear the gospel and be saved. We are walking into a spiritual battle with that message. But God will prevail. People will be saved. Because God is in charge. Let's see if there's an example of this in Paul's life. Verse 35. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? So the city clerk comes in to the amphitheater. Remember, people have been chanting, and they're real riled up for two hours, screaming and yelling, and the town clerk comes in. And he, and he gets everyone to calm down. Now, they did this for the town clerk, the city clerk, because the city clerk had tremendous power. And so, if you were a property of Rome, so they weren't, they, they were like an like a, a, a extension of Rome, Ephesus was, with, with an amount of freedom. And so, what you didn't want is you didn't want Rome to take notice that you had problems in your city. Because if they did, they're bringing in a garrison of troops. They're bringing in another leader. You're probably, they don't even give you a trial. They probably just execute you, remove you from power, and they bring in like, kind of like essentially like the National Guard to quell the rebellion. So the city clerk is going to go and stand in front of these people because he doesn't want that to happen. So as you all know how important Artemis is to us and the image that fell from heaven that they worshipped, that was probably a meteorite. That's what we believe. That's what scholars think they uncovered. It was placed in the temple. They think that the goddess uh, sent that meteorite as a sign. And so he points all these things out. He continues in verse 36. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and, do not, and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here, and are not te- they are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess, So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So the city clerk comes in. Everybody's all worked up. They're they're probably prepared to leave that amphitheater to go into the city and to tear houses apart until they find Paul, where they're probably going to stone him and throw him outside the city. The clerk comes in, tells him, y'all need to settle down, all right? Paul's not doing anything wrong. He's not done anything illegal. He's not blaspheming our goddess. Actually, he is, which is funny. Paul did totally blaspheme their goddess. And this guy didn't have the whole story. He's just trying to get them to settle down. So God's using this clerk for Paul and the Christians' own protection. The mob disperse. They take no legal action against Paul and his friends because they weren't guilty of anything. Now Luke's description of the way this dangerous mob was silenced and dispersed reminds us of something important. The final thing I want you to hear today. God is in charge of your life. No matter what you're going through, whether as Brandon said earlier, you're on a hill or a valley, 
We serve a God who walks with us through our most difficult times. He is our shepherd who will not leave us alone. He loves us. He died for us. He's with us in the great times and in the not-so-great times. He's the God who created this world and everything in it. There's no time in any moment in all of creation where God is not on his throne and where God is not in charge of all things. He created everything. He oversees everything. God is sovereign over everything. And he will work out a glorious plan in your life. Leave it to him. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say it clearly to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him, and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean or rely on your own understanding. That doesn't mean stop using your brain. God gave you a brain for a purpose to use it. It means don't lean on everything you know like a crutch. We know so little about this world and everything in it. Our Lord knows everything about this world and everything in it. And so we've got to rely on Him. We've got to give everything in our life over to Him. And welcome the saturation of the Holy Spirit in both our lives and the lives of our church. Don't rely, don't lean on, don't trust only in your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Now, what's he going to do when you do that? Make your paths straight. We just learned earlier in this part of in this text, early Christians were called the way. Because following Jesus was like walking on a path. It was a journey. Now the promise from God in the Old Testament, well before Jesus was ever sent, was that if we would trust in him, if we would follow the leadership and the guidance of God's word through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the wise counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ, he will make our path straight. That means he removes obstacles and he illuminates the way that we are supposed to go. My question for you today as I close is this. What do you need to turn over to Jesus today? Perhaps you have an idol in your life. Perhaps something in your life has taken the place of Jesus as the key and most important part of your worship. Do you need to surrender that to him today? Maybe you wandered off the path. Maybe as I preach about Christianity as being the way, the journey, the pathway, you're like, yeah, I'm not walking on that path. Here's the great news. You can come back to the path anytime. You're here today, which means you're alive. You're breathing. Your heart is beating. There's no other day. There's no other moment than this moment to come back to Christ. And maybe also there's a part of your life you've kind of been withholding from him. Maybe it's not an idol for you yet. But maybe you recognize, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to that. Maybe you know God wants you to do something or not do something or turn something over to him. Maybe there's something you've been worrying about. And instead of handing it over to him, you're like, no, no, I got this. Jesus is like, no, no, bring it to the altar. No, no, I got it, Jesus, I'm good. He's like, I can tell you're good. You're not sleeping, you're worried. He didn't make you to, to live a life that way. Take that thing, whatever that is that you're, that you're holding, and turn it over to him. 
I want to invite everybody to stand now. We're going to have a time of invitation. And so if you've never been here before, we're going to sing a song together. And there'll be a time for you to respond to what God's doing in your heart. If you need to make that decision today to follow Jesus, come on up. I'm going to show you how to do that. Are there something you need to release to, to him? Come to the altar and just pray right here and hand it over. Maybe you want to join the church, follow through with baptism. Whatever decision you have, if the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, don't let that moment pass by. That's a blessing from God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of worship, this unique opportunity we have after hearing your word to respond by faith. Whatever it is you're calling us to do, help us to have the strength and the boldness to do it. We love you, Lord. We trust you in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray.
God good? All the time. All right. Well, it's been a wonderful, wonderful morning of worship. I'm going to close in prayer, and you all will be dismissed. Make sure to catch Darlene, ladies, if you're interested in getting signed up for the women's, uh, women's trip, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day you've given to us. This is a day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are a wonderful God as we leave this place. Help us to go to worship you, and to be a light in a dark place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.